by Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. I'm Logan Anderson, as you just heard the big voice guy say. We are here in the Say the Damn Score podcast studio, which sounds a lot more official than saying my spare bedroom. Uh, I am a sportscaster in South Dakota, and I do high school and small college sports. And right now I am joined by Mark Zumoff. He is the TV voice of the Philadelphia 76ers. And Mark, how are you doing today? I actually, I don't mind being in your spare bedroom. It's okay. <laughs> well, that's good because you're stuck here for the next hour or so, whether you want to be no or not. No place I'd rather be, Logan. I guess one of the things I like to do to start off the show each time is I like to just break the ice and find out when was the very first time you were on the air and doing a little bit of preparation before uh, we started this show. I know that you were on, maybe not on the air, but you were practicing being on the air at a very young age, talking into recorders and announcing stickball games. When did you know what you wanted to do with your life? Right. So let me just backtrack. The The first time I was actually on the air, I went to Temple's Ambler, Temple University in Philadelphia, they have a satellite campus. They had a small radio station in the basement of the women's dorm. It was literally in a broom closet. And a gentleman was doing a top 40 radio show. And I did the news for three minutes. And my father was, it was a carrier current radio station. It was about five watts. You can only get it around campus, but it leaked a little bit over the air. So he sat in his car on campus and he listened to me. And it, that was quite the thrill, certainly. And then, um, yeah, like a lot of play-by-play guys turning the sound down of the TV and doing games into a tape recorder. But when I was doing this back in the day in the 70s, there was no such thing as ESPN. There were, you know, the only sports on were at night. They were local and, and they only came on two, three times a week except for baseball. So what I would do is I got really creative and I came home and I took my over the air TV and I put it on channel eight, which had sort of, uh, which was snow. You know, there was no channel eight in Philadelphia and I made up games. And while I was making up the games, I sort of regulated the crowd to, you know, to cheer. So, you know, it was Greer in the corner to Cunningham, downloaded Chamberlain, hook shot is up, good. <laughs> and I would crank up the, the channel eight, the snow and, no, I had myself a ball game. And with that, um, when was your first big break getting into the business professionally? I wasn't sure that I was going to make it in the business. I'd heard that it was all too competitive and there was really no room for me. So um, I worked my way through school in a scrap iron and steel yard. And upon graduation, I continued work there. And I just didn't like it and knew that it wasn't for me. So I started running to then a phone booth and making calls to radio stations. And I got a job at a small radio station in Trenton, New Jersey. 
they were off the air more than they were on the air. And I did rip and read news. And that was uh, my first job. I did it for 110 bucks a week. They were six weeks behind in my pay. But when I got that first check for ripping and reading the news, I knew that that was for me. When you got that first check, was it a sprint to the bank to make sure it cleared? You know, you know it's funny you would say that because I, I think that I eventually left there, Logan, and left a little money on the table, a little bit of money on the table because I was only getting about 110 bucks a week. But um, just looking at that check, just seeing my name on it, know that I got paid to speak on the radio was one of the great thrills of my life that I'll never forget. So going from news to sports, there had to be a couple steps in between, and we'll get to those in a minute, but doing the news and learning to work sources and build relationships, and I guess you weren't really doing that, as you say, you were just ripping and reading, but I'm sure you were still building some relationships at that point. What was the next step that you made after that point, getting your foot in the door? Well, I'll tell you, uh, you talked about transitioning to sports. So I worked in radio news for about the first five years of my life. And I was working at what was really a very good station in Princeton, New Jersey. And I was a newsman at the time. And I'd heard in the hallways of the radio station that the play-by-play voice for Princeton football and basketball got fired. And it was the middle of the football season. So I walked into the station manager's office. I said, I could do play-by-play, and he took my word for it, and they put me on the air, and that was the beginning of my transition from news to sports. Interesting. That is that is a unique way to do it. Being ready and available sometimes is half of the battle in what we do, and being ready and available to jump in mid-season is not something that a lot of people really can do with a good conscience. How much of that timing led to you getting that first play-by-play job? I think that everyone who wants to get into sports and starts out in news, I think is doing themselves a service by doing that because there are many different skills that you can develop and route to it. And you spoke about timing. Well, if you're an aspiring sportscaster, if you want to anchor sports or report sports and you're doing news at a small station, um, there, there's no better timing that you could set up for yourself than to already be there so that when there is some movement, you you can be the first one on the list. They already know who you are. They know what your work ethic is about. They, they understand that you understand them and uh, you kind of make your own timing. So I think in that regard, for those who want to, uh, and it's it, quite frankly, it's the same thing in a way with play-by-play guys doing halftime shows, pregame shows, and, and the like. Um, that's what I did before the Sixers. I was the halftime guy for 13 years, and timing had it so that I was in the right place at the right time because there was some movement. I was able to slide one seat over. So give us the Cliff Notes version of the rest of your path going from, at that point, Princeton to getting that uh, pre- and post-game show with the 76ers and then getting to your eventual spot where you're at right now where you are the TV play-by-play voice? Sure. So um, a big break came for me. I was, as mentioned, working in radio news. I befriended a guy who became the PR guy for an indoor soccer team. Uh, they wanted their own identity, and they were work- they were working and operating in Philadelphia. They needed a TV and radio voice, and I auditioned and got the job. Uh, The team only lasted for a couple of years, but 
their games were on a sports channel in Philadelphia called Prism. They had first-run movies. They had Flyers hockey, Sixers basketball, Phillies baseball, and other sports. And because I was exposed to them doing indoor soccer, they liked what they had heard, and they had me in to do an audition, and I got the job uh, anchoring a, a a sports show that came on between the movies, and then I eventually graduated to um, becoming the halftime guy for the Sixers. And by the way, uh, when I did that, uh, I had to fill time at halftime doing features, editing features, doing interviews and such, and I learned everything from an intern who taught me how to edit and and taught me how to you know mix and that sort of thing. So it happened sort of in a strange way, but again, uh, getting exposed to the indoor soccer really helped me. You know, I want to go dig deeper into that where the indoor soccer and being part of a program that covers soccer, you see a lot of people coming up that way, surprisingly. There's been a lot of, I think, Dave Johnson uh, for the Washington Wizards came up the same way, started with soccer first. and But there's not a ton of people who grow up knowing soccer in this country, and there's a lot of dead space and a lot of fast action kind of simultaneously in that game. What are the keys to broadcasting soccer, and do you see that as a gateway for people going forward? I think anything can be a gateway. Um, I know that before I did the Sixers, I got to try a lot of different things. I did Flyers hockey as a fill-in guy. Um, I did college football as a a part-time guy. So I got to develop uh, my broadcasting abilities and uh, my chops in a number of different ways. Certainly soccer could be an entree, but I think it's to the point now with MLS where um, it's become, I don't want to say a full-time gig for some guys, but uh, there are are many guys now who are not just learning soccer as a way to get into broadcasting. I think that it's it's become its own niche, and I think soccer broadcasters are becoming more plentiful, and I think it's a skill that, quite frankly, um, you know, if you're good at it, like a John Strong or a J.P. Telecamera or somebody like that, you can you can make a life, you can make a career out of doing mostly, if not all, soccer games. And doing soccer well, what are some of the keys to overcoming some of the difficulties that that game provides? You know, Logan, uh, if you're a broadcaster, you could do anything. So I believe that I could do news tomorrow because I understand what it is to communicate. I understand the importance of knowing my audience. I understand the importance of knowing the medium that I'm using to communicate with. And so um, it's like anything else. Uh, You study the rules, you talk to the people who play and coach the game, you do what you can to understand the strategy enough so that you can make your uh, color analyst sound intelligent and be engaged. It's, uh, listen, I did sled hockey for the NBC Sports Network a couple of years ago. And I know a little bit about hockey and nothing about the sled version, but I immersed myself for the better part of a week. And by the time it came to do this tournament, I think I knew enough that I that I sounded like I sort of knew what I was talking about. So whether it's soccer, whether it's sled hockey, whether it's curling, whether it's baseball, uh, you do yourself a service by doing homework. And then uh, if you do it well enough, you could do just about anything. What is sled hockey? It's not really relevant to the normal conversation, but I'm just curious because I've never heard of it before. Is it literally just people going around on a sled playing hockey? 
Right. So this is um, it's hockey in every sense, with the exception of the fact that um, you could be a quadriplegic, say, from birth. You could be a paraplegic. You could be uh, as many of the players were. Uh, they sustained uh, injuries, leg injuries, where they lost use of their legs in combat in Afghanistan. And what you do is you propel yourself around the ice on a sled. You have two small hockey sticks. They're about half the size of regular hockey sticks. On one end is a standard blade. On the other end, it's literally like small picks that allow you to propel yourself through the ice as, as you would see a skier using poles. And uh, it's amazing what those guys can do. You can stick handle with, with both sticks. You propel yourself uh, uh, with the sticks, with the butt ends. And I, I found it to be fascinating, and I, and, I, and I found it to be actually pretty exciting. So covering that, was that part of like a Paralympics-type setting? Well, I believe it's a Paralympic Winter Olympic event. Um, that, quite frankly, you know, uh, I work for um, – CSN Philly, and we are operated by NBC. We are affiliated with NBC Sports. We take our um, commands and our um, marching orders from NBC Sports, and there is some uh, vertical movement. So they needed someone to do a game at the NBC Sports Network. They were running out of time, and they reached out to my boss, and he reached out to me, and the rest is history. So covering, you know, people who had been in Afghanistan and lost limbs and being able to, you know, kind of bring that to the people and show what they've been through and how they're able to recover, was that inspiring to you? Very much so. Uh, that's aside from the fact that this was an international tournament. So it was the United States against Russia. Canada was involved. Italy had a team. Um, you know, just personally, I'm all about saluting all people in uniform, whether it's firefighters, police officers or whatnot. But just the fact that these people could have um, could have given of themselves and, and made the sacrifice that they did to fight for our country and then be able to wear our country's colors in an international sporting event and compete the way they did. Um, if, if you're not proud of that, you can't be proud of anything. So does that ever, you know, maybe in the next time you had a day where you didn't maybe want to go do the lawn work or go put in the, I mean, obviously you're putting in the full amount of prep, but maybe you wanted to put it off. Is that something that you think back, they can do that and uh, you get off your rear and go forward? You know, I'll tell you what, Logan, you and I and anyone else who's in this business who's getting paid to broadcast sports uh, we're, we're very fortunate. So anytime I might think for a second that I don't want to prepare for a game and that doesn't come up too often, but anytime I feel a little bit sluggish or what have you, you know, I think that I could have a regular job in a cubicle or not have a sports job at all. And, um, it, it doesn't take me long to snap out of that funk. That's all, that's all I need to do is just think about how lucky I am. So we talked a little bit already about your path to the 76ers. And one of the things that I found interesting doing a little bit of reading up on you is that you didn't actually graduate from college until 15 years after your senior year. And that's because you put off going to class your senior year to start making connections and get into the industry. 
I, I, maybe it's changed now where it's more of a prerequisite to actually have that paper, but how important is an education compared to gaining experience? And would you recommend finishing college if you were a student, if you had an opportunity to get into the business? That's an outstanding, that's an outstanding question. And I'm going to answer it this way. I think that I personally had unfinished business and I felt an obligation to complete that business and get my degree. Of course, by then I was the halftime guy for the Sixers for crying out loud, though I wasn't that short in terms of credits, but I did not have a degree. And quite frankly, I do believe that it's how you look, it's how you sound, it's how you prepare, it's your people skills, it's your networking skills that are paramount. Uh, For some people, I, I think college is necessary to help them develop a lot of those skills. For some people, they might come out of high school and and they're ready to rock and roll and they could put off college or not go to college at all. Um, I'll say this. I think it's a personal decision ultimately. And I will say that one of my good friends is a longtime producer for Turner Sports and he does NBA games and he never set foot in a college in his life. So... Um, I, I don't want to diminish college, but I think that for most people, it behooves them to at least go some of the time, if not to complete their degrees. So if you were talking to someone who did not you know, decide to get a post-high school education, but wanted to get into sports casting, what would you tell them to do? I think what you need to do first and foremost is believe in yourself, to believe that you could do that. And that that goes for even college grads. That goes for 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds. You always have to believe in yourself. That's that's the top thing. That's the, that's the most important thing um, besides good pipes, besides preparation, besides research, besides giving the damn score, is do you believe in yourself? So um, I would check with them and say, hey, do you, do you, are you ready to do this? It's 17, 18, 19, whatever age you happen to be. And then I would make sure that they have their people skills, that they're ready to go out there and make the contacts necessary, that they know how to do it, that they're mature enough to deal with the rejection, to be persistent, but patient at the same time. And uh, some might be ready from, uh, you know, their skill set to their people skills, to their overall maturity to be able to do that. Some might not. Some might have to go out and just find out if they if they have that. And then they might come back with, with their tail between their legs and say, you know what, I, I got to go to college. I'm, I'm not ready for this. So I would give them the warnings and I would say, hey, if you're dead set against college and you think you can do it, well, go ahead, but be prepared for the consequences. Okay. I, obviously, I did finish college and I enjoyed my time there and I definitely didn't need it. But um, one of the things I wanted to talk about you to you with was about working with an analyst because you've worked with a lot of them and you've had some interesting experiences with analysts that have become well-known over the years. And before we get into the specifics, I just want to ask you, what are your thoughts on what are the keys of working uh, successfully with an analyst? Well, I think it's important to develop an away-from-the-mic relationship because then you get to understand the depth and breadth of your analyst, the inherent knowledge that they have of the sport. Um, As you go through your time with them on the air, you begin to get a feel for what they're comfortable with and what they're not. Um, 
I think all that's very important. I think uh, communicating with them as it relates to the storylines that they have going into the game so that then you can set them up accordingly and make them look good. Um, I think, I think overall, um, I'll go back to Jack Brickhouse, who was the late great voice of the, um, I guess the Chicago Cubs among other teams. And I went to a seminar once when I was a young broadcaster and he said, you know, play your analyst like a violin. So, that's, I think, most play-by-play guys, that's what you see yourself as, someone who has an instrument, and it's your responsibility to make that instrument sound as good as you can make it sound. You had, of course, the famous kind of incident where you had uh, a analyst fall asleep while you were on the air. That was Eric Snow, uh, I believe. I don't remember the exact year. And I'm not asking you to throw him under the bus, but what was your reaction to that how would you change that reaction? And, well, that's already too many questions in one question. We'll follow no, up no, after no. that. No, but. it's all good. Um, we were getting, we were coming out of a halftime break. We were getting ready to start the third quarter. And Eric was sitting to my right, and he was sort of preparing himself for the rest of the game. And in doing so, he was kind of, you know, rolling his head around a little bit, and, and he had his eyes closed. And we had one of those games where I think the Sixers were getting beaten pretty badly. And it was sort of a loose broadcast. And, you know, I'll throw myself under the bus. Maybe I shouldn't have gone there and said, you know, what are you doing? Are you meditating? And he happened to say, well, I'm asleep. So we laughed about it because we knew he wasn't asleep. And we proceeded to do the rest of the game. Uh, That was the last game for the All-Star break. We all went our separate ways. Uh, We were all gone away for a few days before the resumption of the season. And then it seemed like it went viral. So um, and that surprised all of us because we knew he wasn't sleeping. It was like just a joke between the two of us. And, uh, you know, it it had it seems like it 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 continues to, to live in urban legend. So anybody who asked me about it, that's the story I tell. And it happens to be the truth. Anybody who wants to believe that Eric uh, eventually fell asleep, and I know he hears about it a lot, well, they're going to believe what they're going to believe, but um, he did not fall asleep, and it was merely a joke between a couple of broadcasters. Okay, so I'm not saying that he was not necessarily a good analyst. Frankly, I didn't hear them. I was quite young. But if you had an analyst that you didn't necessarily click with or that just didn't do things to a standard that you would usually like, what do you do to try to get them to kind of outperform uh, what they're doing and get through a broadcast? What I try to do is I feel as though, and maybe this isn't a good example for young broadcasters, maybe they have to attack it a different way, but I'm 40 years in the business. So most analysts I come across will not have close to the amount of experience that I have in the business. So I do try to coach them. I think if you're a young broadcaster and maybe you don't have quite that um, resume, so to speak, maybe just um, a little bit of honesty over a beer or a meal just to say, um, hey, you know what? I I don't think things are quite clicking and maybe it's on me. Uh, What can I do? to uh, make things better? What can I do to make you more comfortable? Be solicitous like that and then hope that 
he or she comes around and says, you know, and you know what? Maybe I could A, B, and C, and some healthy discussion will be promoted. So um, if I'm a young broadcaster, that's what I would do. I would, I would take someone aside in a neutral uh, area and I would say, you know, what is it that I can do to, to make things better so that we can click and have better chemistry? So you had the fortune to be able to cover the women's basketball team in the Rio Olympics. And, you know, I listened to another similar podcast to this, Joel Godet's play-by-play cast. He had you on a while back on that one, and it was right before the Olympics that it was recorded where you were talking about what you expected to see when you got there. What was it like at the Rio Olympics? And just give us a couple stories, maybe not necessarily about the games, perhaps, but just about the culture and the environment surrounding an Olympic Games in a city like Rio? I would say that it was an assignment that I probably never worked harder in my life. I took about the better part of the month of June and July to bone up on women's basketball because, quite frankly, I knew very little about the women's game. I cultivated some sources. I spent a considerable amount of time on the phone with them, interviewing them, going back and interviewing them again. So that was it in terms of preparation. Uh, once you get there, Logan, it everything is new from the fact that you're in a foreign country to making sure that everything works with your security or your passes, you know, checking into your hotel, making sure that you can get around, understanding how you get around, you know, logistically things are spread out. Uh, NBC, having been through this many times, did provide uh, a great deal of support to us. We had a woman who was with our group and she was almost like a tour guide. All she did was get us from place to place, make sure that we had our credentials, make sure that we were fed, that kind of thing. And then uh, professionally through the uh, two, two weeks that we were performing, um, quite frankly, it was a lot of pressure on me because you know the stakes were high. It was a worldwide event on a national network. And um, you know, like anything else, when you have a challenge like that, your concentration level is at its peak. And it's at its peak every day. And it's at its peak every day for 14 or 15 straight days. So by the time it was done, while I did feel some professional fulfillment, I was totally exhausted. Uh, Rio is an unbelievable place. One minute you're passing a favela, which is those colorful but uh, destitute neighborhoods in the hills. The next minute you're passing by million-dollar condominiums and uh, beautiful natural and man-made sites. Uh, the traffic problem there is horrendous. So you have to give yourself plenty of time. There's a lot of hurry up and wait. And uh, I found the Brazilian to people to be great. Although my high school Spanish was totally useless because they spoke Portuguese. Um, and I will say this about the Olympic experience. Uh, Doug Collins, of course, a former player, former coach with the Sixers, was doing the analysis for the men's game. So we were having dinner one night before the tournament actually started. And I said, coach, I have all these questions. You know, for example, is there is there instant replay or is there a flopping rule? And I came up with a list of about seven or eight questions. He put them to his researcher and the researcher came up with answers. But the Olympics being what they are, I found out as the games unveiled themselves 
the information that the researcher got was totally different. For example, I was told there was no replay, and then one game, all of a sudden, the official stopped the game and started running over to the scorer's table, and he turned the monitor around and started looking at a, a replay to make sure he got a call right. So uh, the Olympics are, are wonderful, they're wild, and, and they're a lot of work, but if you're on your game and you come prepare, they could be very fulfilling. I want to follow up on that again. You talked about learning the differences between the men's game and the women's game. And, you know, a lot of people at lower levels go back and forth all the time. So I know kind of my personal thoughts on that, but I'm curious what yours are. Well, as it relates to basketball, clearly the, the, there's n not nearly the element of verticality and athleticism. Now, these are these are the world's greatest athletes among women, but uh, it's different with men. Uh, there are the, the NBA. I, I believe they're, they're the world's greatest athletes and there's nothing to compare. That said, the individual and then subsequent team skill level that I saw was was really pretty amazing. Uh, whether it was a Maya Moore or a Brianna Stewart or a Diana Taurasi uh, these are basketball players. These are, these are women who know how to play the game. They can shoot, they can dribble, they can pass, they defend, um, and they understand all the nuances. They're professionals in, in, in every sense and by far the best of their kind in the world because they were beating everybody by 35 or 40 points. So once I got to appreciate the tempo and the own unique we'll call it specialness of the women's game and their own unique beauty of the women's game, it became, quite frankly, very enjoyable for me. So calling big blowouts in the Olympics is something that you probably had had quite a bit of experience with over the couple of years before that with the Philadelphia 76ers kind of going through the process as it was called. And I'm not asking you to say whether it was right or wrong, but calling games for a team that the players and coaches were trying to win, but the front office was kind of actively trying to lose. How do you handle that situation? I think what you need to do is you need to look more on a micro level. So the CEO for the Sixers is fond of saying, when you're selling tickets, you can sell one of two things. You could sell winning or you can sell hope. So if I'm the broadcaster for a team that's not performing well, how do you sell hope? Well, what you do is you can, for example, you break down an individual's game and say, hey, here's someone who was not shooting well from three-point territory, but in the last month they're shooting 40% because they've been working diligently with the coaches. Or here's a player, Robert Covington, who uh, could not make the Houston Rockets and was given the opportunity by the Sixers to get regular playing time. And now he's become not only a good shooter, which is something that we knew all along, but the Sixers coaches worked with him and made him an outstanding defender. What else can you talk about concerning a player that's interesting or that's positive or that's something that would be entertaining, whether it's something off the court or a funny story or that sort of thing? And then there's always the opponent. There's always LeBron James. There's always Kevin Durant. There's always Paul George or Chris Paul or, you know, the, 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 the league is, is strewn with stars. So you lean on that when you're down 30 points. Well, we're down 30 points because 
Steph Curry is maybe the greatest shooter of all time. So that's what you do. And ultimately, you remember that you're getting paid to be there. And as my boss likes to say, you're not doing a game, you're doing a television show. So it's your responsibility, no matter what's happening in the game itself, whether your favorite team is winning by 40 or losing by 40, to make it entertaining and informative as a television show. So I've had this conversation with other sportscasters, and following up on that, I think it's a a fitting question to put to you. As the TV play-by-play guy, do you consider yourself a journalist? Not at all. Not, not, Not even close. Sometimes I'll kid and say, I sell tickets. CSN Philly has a business relationship with the 76ers. And I have a full understanding of what that relationship is. That's not to say that if the team is playing poorly, I I should sugarcoat it and say, well, you know, they won last night. If the team is playing poorly, that's something you need to point out. And quite frankly, um, it will help you to maintain the credibility that you need because when you do go to sell tickets or you do need to do something else for the team, uh, there's some more believability in it as opposed to someone who's seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. So um, I tell people all the time, um, if they say that I need to be more critical, I, I say, well, if you want criticism, tune in to the local sports talk show or read the local columnist online. That's that's not my job. That's not my responsibility. Though I will say, even within the scope of our business relationship with the Sixers, that um, I don't hear, at least to my face, too much that I'm a homer. In fact, a lot of people will say to me, um, you know, it's amazing what you're you're able to do and you don't sugarcoat it. And, um, you know, they feel like it's a pretty good listen. So I wanted to get to this since the second that I knew I was going to be talking to you because one of my favorite players to watch play basketball in the history of the game was Allen Iverson. And you covered him, and he was a polarizing character, changed the league in a lot of ways. Give us a couple stories of what it was like to be around him on a day-to-day basis. There's there's no hiding the fact that Allen had an interesting off-the-court lifestyle. So... And because of the braids and, you know, wearing the uniforms of different teams on the bench until they came up with a dress code and cutting a rap album and, you know, other issues surrounding his unbelievable play, he became uh, one of the more polarizing figures, I think, in really the history of sports, certainly in Philadelphia, And clearly there's a whole generation of players that grew up and saw that crossover and saw the way he played. Um, That said, he got us to the finals in 2001. And quite frankly, some of the most exciting, unbelievable moments in my sportscasting career came broadcasting and trying to describe some of the things that he was doing. Uh, You have to remember, he's generously listed at six feet. He's 165 pounds, which is what I am at 5'10". And he played with a a zest and a reckless abandon that was something that I don't believe we'll ever see again. Constantly going into the lane, constantly taking punishment, um, never seeming to run out of energy. Um, When I think back on his career, 
And by the way, he was very kind to me in his Hall of Fame speech. When I think back on his career, I, I'm really thankful that I that I had a, a front row seat to that because uh, no matter what happens with this team, and I know there's a lot of promise with our young team right now, uh, that's going to be one of the more special uh, few years of my sportscasting life was doing his games. I know that I had an opportunity actually to see him play when he had left the Sixers and was in Denver. It was at a non-TV game against Portland when they weren't very good, and he was the only person on either team diving on the floor after balls and just putting maximum effort into it, and I always had a great deal of respect for him for that reason. I'll say this to your point, and the practice rant, of course, has become viral and world famous, and you know it's on the tip of everyone's tongue, but he never took he never took a possession off, certainly on the offensive end. Um, and when it came time to playing hurt, believe me, you know, there was one story that I'll, that I'll tell you really quick. You asked for an Iverson story. Uh, there was a time where he injured his thumb and everybody was, you know, really worried that he wasn't going to be able to play. And Iverson himself was worried that he wasn't going to be able to play. I forgot what it was, Logan, whether it was a broken bone or a ligament or whatever, but an important game was coming up and Allen had to play. And he went to the trainer and said, I don't care what you got to do. I, I have to play in this game. So this was the night before the game. So the trainer stayed up all night making this protective device for Alan's thumb. It was like a broken thumb. And he, and he worked at it all night long. And he gave it to him at shoot around the next day. And he used it in shoot around. He started playing with it in the game. First shot he took, he missed. He took the thumb thing, he threw it off, and he played 40 minutes that night. I think he scored like 30 or 35 points with a broken thumb. That's an incredible story. But, again, well, I don't think we'll see a player like him anytime soon. But um, I want to move away from that and back into the stop being a fanboy for a second and get back into the, the nuts and bolts here. You published a book. You, you wrote a book on sportscasting. You could literally say you wrote the book on sportscasting. It's called Total Sportscasting. What made you decide that you wanted to join Max Negan and write a sportscasting book? What I always wanted to do was do a breaking into broadcasting, how to do it. So I always had that thought. Max is a longtime friend of mine. He's a professor at Elon, and as a professor, you are frequently asked by academic publishers to read textbooks or prospective textbooks and give your feedback so that the publisher and, of course, the author can give professors the information that they need to teach their class. So he had a connection with a publisher, and we pitched some ideas to the publisher, and it eventually morphed into total sportscasting meaning uh, performance production and career development, like the subtitle says. So uh, it took about two and a half years. It was a labor of love. You don't make a lot of money writing a book like that, especially a textbook. But um, as a broadcast coach, which is something I also do, um, I put it to very good use with my clients. So a lot of times I'll say to them, um, you know, you want to write a certain way, you want to network a certain way, you want to broadcast or sound a certain way and oh by the way you could check out chapter whatever in my book and that'll help you as well well i did get it and i read it cover to cover and 
as a radio guy for most of my career, there was, I don't want to say it was unapplicable. It could certainly be applicable in the future, but you, I found it very interesting, all the stuff that goes into a TV broadcast, just because I've never done one, and you guys go really deep into the directors and the producers and how to work with them and what to do, what they're doing, almost allowing someone who read it to have have the ability to be the quarterback who knows the playbook and knows what everybody else is doing at any given time. That's important, Logan, because you and I, while we're both described as play-by-play broadcasters, we have very different jobs. So you are the director. You are the producer. You are the graphics guy. You're everything because you're doing radio. And people are solely dependent on you and what it is that you have to say. I'm just one of the gears in a machine. So while I'm doing the game, there's a director who's got his ideas, what he should show. There's a producer who wants to get in replays. He wants to get in promos. He needs to get in commercials. Um, he wants to get in roll-ins that he edited, uh, that kind of thing. We have a sideline person. She needs to come in and give her stories once or twice a half. I have an analyst and he's got to get in his two cents. I got a stat guy and he's handing me things. I have a stat monitor that's live and I have to incorporate that. So I'm there really like as a traffic cop and I'm helping to facilitate all of this. Whereas um, you can solely decide the direction of your show. Um, I can sometimes, but there's a constant push pull between a lot of elements that I have to be sensitive to. Obviously, you've done it this long, you like it, but was there ever a difficulty in the transition going from radio where you are in full control and having to give up that control to a degree to a director or a producer? Well, I think for me, there was the, like for a lot of radio guys going to TV, over-describing and knowing that I didn't have to be so redundant that people could already see a lot of what I was talking about. So I had I needed to come up with phrases and I needed to come up with things that could accent or accentuate or expand upon what people could already see. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, the on-camera stuff was difficult for me at first. Doing stand-ups, do I look at my analyst? Do I look at the camera? Um, you know, I, I didn't know any of that. I had no one really to teach me. So when I started doing the indoor soccer games, they just threw me on the air. And I was like awkwardly looking all over the place because, quite frankly, I didn't know where to look. So those were probably the the two biggest transitions, but um, I miss radio. And there's a part of me that would like to be able to do what you do because I think that it's, um, I I think being everything like you are is something that's, um, that could be very fulfilling. And maybe you'll let me uh, meet you somewhere one day and do a quarter of whatever it is that you're doing. If you ever make it to uh, Vermilion, South Dakota, you can hop on a Tanager's game with me. I what's promise. That, what's, what's the closest NBA city? Would that be Minneapolis? Uh, it would be Minneapolis or, yeah, it would definitely be Minneapolis. Next would probably be Chicago or Denver, and those are a long way away. <laughs> Minneapolis right, is right. about four and a half hours from where I am. Well, you know, I have some clients, and when they travel the miners and they happen to be in the area, they're always calling me saying, Hey, come on, you know, eat up some innings for me. So maybe I'll do that. I've never done baseball. I've done a lot of different sports. I've never done an out of baseball. So maybe when they come a calling, I'll, I'll do that. So when 
you saying that a lot of broadcasters I we've talked to on this show have reached high levels similar to you. One of them actually was another NBA guy, and he said he always had wanted to do baseball, but his career path took him to basketball. Do you ever regret that you never got to do baseball? Because you talked about you know playing stickball and that kind of being your inspiration. Was there ever any regret that you never did baseball? I don't think so. I am, and I said this before. First of all, basketball is my favorite sport. It was my first love. So I'm doing what I think I was meant to do. I have no regrets. I mean, Logan, really, you know, I, I've, I've had the chance to travel the world. I work in the NBA. I have one of 30 jobs. I have, you know, there are more U.S. senators than people who do what I do, which is broadcast NBA basketball on TV. So regrets, zero, none. Uh, I'm perfectly happy doing what I'm doing. So I read a quote from you in some article where you said that being the pre- and post-game show host for so long helped you to expand your vocabulary because you had to be a good writer and come up with unique ways to say things. There's always a controversy about do you pre-plan some of the phrases that are going to be in your broadcast. What is your thought on pre-planning versus being spontaneous? I think spontaneity is the key. I think it's the only way to go. I think people can tell if it's pre-planned. But your quoting of me uh, is something that I wouldn't mind expanding upon a little bit. When you write, there is a flow that you get into where you come up with metaphors and different ways of saying things, especially when you're writing for video. So that's a head that I kind of get into when I do games on TV. I'm there to try to spin phrases. So I don't prepare phrases per se, but cognitively speaking, as I'm calling the action, there's a part of me that's composing. And listen, quite frankly, there are phrases that I revisit time and time again, things that I'm, I'm known for. Um, you know, like down it goes for a three-pointer or, uh, you know, a guy is in rhythm when he, when he, you know, catches and shoots, that kind of thing. Lock locking the windows and doors. Locking all windows and doors, right. So, listen, you have phrases that you probably lean on as well and they're, you know, they're constantly going around in your head. And then there are new phrases that enter into the realm as well or maybe phrases that you would use only one time only. But... Never would I recommend to anyone that they pre-prepare or have something written down and try to get it in. I, I don't think that that's a good way to do it. And quite frankly, I think the audience can tell that it's contrived. So you have recently entered the podcast space. You are um, do one called Zoo's Views. I'm sure you can find it on iTunes. I'll let you give it a little plug here in a little bit. But what made you decide to get into podcasting. It's something I really enjoy. Is it something that made your the team wanted you to do, or was it something that you wanted to do? Actually, the channel, and they're my employer, uh, they came to me. Uh, we're doing a lot of reinvention at CSN and the other NBC regional sports networks. We're trying to be more in tune with the viewer and his or her habits. 
So whether it's Facebook Live or whether it's podcasting or, you know, anything having to do with social media or debate shows, that kind of thing. So I kind of got swept into that because I'm part of that. And they came to me and said, we'd like you to do a podcast. And uh, to me, a podcast should be more or less what you're doing with me when you have where you have someone and you're doing an interview as opposed to me sitting there with a buddy and, you know, talking for 25 minutes off the cuff about the NBA and what we think about certain things. So that's what I try to do. I try to get players and others, whether they're coaches, people who were in the league, former GMs, owners, that sort of thing, and um, and kick it with them anywhere from 15 to 25 minutes. You know, I do. I try to do as much homework as I can, and then I try to sort of make it as though we're sitting in our family room and we're we're having a conversation. I'm curious on your opinion on something because running the podcast, podcaster to podcaster here, I want to be prepared and I want to have an outline of where probably the podcast is going to go, but I don't want it to I don't want it to be afraid of going off track and going into new territory where I learned something that I didn't expect. What are your thoughts on that? I think that as an interviewer, you definitely want that to happen because if you end up going down your list of questions, that means that your interviewee has not been engaging and has not given answers that warrant follow up. So to me, I'm a big rabbit hole guy. So I might have a nugget that I throw at somebody in the form of a question and then their answer feeds into another question and then we we go down that rabbit hole. So to me, those make the most interesting interviews when you're just listening and you're focusing and then you're feeding off of what they have to say. And quite frankly, Logan, you know this from being a play-by-play guy. You you prepare for the way you think a game is going to go. And then if you get, I don't know, 10 to 15 percent of your information and it's a great broadcast. So I think that's something you have to be prepared for, whether you're a play-by-play guy or a podcaster, is that it's going to go in a direction that you don't necessarily expect. One of the other things that getting to know this podcast has given me the opportunity to get to know a lot of sportscasters who are at a far higher level than I am in a way that I never really could have done so otherwise. And I've always been really impressed with how willing they have been to give back and kind of spread their wisdom and take their time to come on some and some nobody in South Dakota's podcast. What is your philosophy about giving back and kind of take that into maybe why you got into sportscast coaching? Well, first of all, uh, let me say that um, I I don't think you should diminish yourself and your talents and what it is that you're doing, whether it's North Dakota, South Dakota, or I don't, you know, I don't care where it is. You're, You're on the air, you're a professional, and there's not many of us. And the fact that you're doing what you're doing means that you're special and you have your own set of talents. So, um, that's what I would say about that. Um, I, I think no matter what it is, whether it's broadcasting, whether it's the law, whether it's medicine, whether it's pharmacy, it's architecture. Um, I, I think it behooves people to, uh, to, to, to look at a younger person and say, Hey, this is the way it's done. I, that's, that to me is just, humanity and being a good human being. So uh, I think it's incumbent upon us, no matter what profession you have, to be ready, willing, and able to help anybody with whatever it is that they need. 
So one of the questions that I do ask everybody, and I, I'm always very interested in this, is give us a couple of your, what I like to call, broadcast horror stories that you've had over your time in your career, where you can look back now and laugh at it, but at the time, something went horribly wrong with your equipment or your uh, broadcast uh, location or the fans in the doing something disruptive, just something throughout your career that was maybe mortifying at the time, but now you can look back on and smile. Sure. Um, I'll throw myself under the bus and I'll try to make it a short story because it can be a long one. And this is actually... It's a podcast. Book, it can be as long as you want it to be. Well, do you remember the... I don't know if you remember the sidebar in the... in the. There was a sidebar in my textbook, and I'll refresh your memory since I know you read it cover to cover, was that I was taping a show. And I was taping a sports show as an anchor. And one of the editors uh, made a mistake. He rolled the wrong highlights tape. So we had to stop the show and we had to, you know, set everything up again. And while the show was stopped and they were setting everything up again, little did I know backstage, the guy who was recording the show continued to record the show. So while I was sitting there waiting to, you know, resume the taping, the producer said, oh, uh, Joe, he messed up. He messed up. And I said, way to go, Joe. And I called him something which included a four letter word. Let's just leave it at that. So we went back. We finished taping the show and we all went home. Later that night, I got a call from my producer. Were you watching our air? I said, no. Why? He said, because we aired the show as we taped it. The tape ended. The show ended. And then later on in the tape, the, the guy forgot that, um, you know, he should have gone to a movie or something like that. And at the and past the taping of the show was me sitting at the table calling the editor the four letter word. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but um, I, ha I had to I had to deal with that. I had to deal with the fact that, you know. It was picked up in the newspapers. Uh, you know, my, my boss was kind. He didn't fire me. But um, the, the cheap lesson was quite obviously you never say anything around an open mic that you wouldn't want to say over the air whether or not you're on the air or not. Did you have problems with Joe from that point out or did he oh, understand? Oh, no, 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 not at all. In fact, it was clearly on me. It was clearly on me. It was totally my fault. The other question that I like to ask everybody is, who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to when you maybe have a night off and you just want to sit back, relax, and listen to a game? Well, I have several on my Mount Rushmore, and I'm um, trying to think of, well, I'll tell you who they are. Uh, Bill Bransom, who was a longtime newscaster in Philly. Bill Campbell, who did Phillies games and Sixers and Eagles, and he was a great voice in the 60s and 70s. Gene Hart, who was the original voice of the Flyers and became a legend in our town, and a guy who is still very much on the air today, and, and he's the greatest hockey broadcaster in the history of the game, is Mike Emmerich. So th those are the four guys on my Mount Rushmore. And another guy who I just love to listen to, I think he's great, is Al Michaels. I just think that his uh, demeanor on the air, the way he comports himself, uh, the phrases he comes up with, his timing, his rapport with his color analyst, I think are just superb and um, as a fellow professional, someone who I, uh, I greatly admire and it was a real thrill for me to get to work in the Olympics and he was there as well. 
So I want to ask another question kind of about working with your analyst, but we're obviously in a, a little bit of a politically divided time. And if I'm wrong or insensitive about anything here, tell me, but you're a Jewish guy from Philadelphia and you work with Abdel Abelnabi, who is a Muslim from who was born in Egypt. Obviously, you've worked together for several years. You work together well. Do you feel like you're almost making a political statement without making a political statement by doing that? I, you know, I don't, but he and I often kid about it. We've, we've become very close. We're brothers. And quite frankly, there's a part of me, Logan, that sees at some point uh, in the future that we could do some good with that. And I don't know what that is because we're just a couple of broadcasters. But um, listen, he was born in Egypt. He came over and he was two. Um, as you mentioned, I'm Jewish. I just came back from my third trip to Israel. Uh, you know, there are there are programs which help to promote peace and and harmony between uh, Jews and, and Arabs. Is there something that we can do in some small way as part of some larger organization? I don't know, but um, I'd like to think that that's uh, a possibility, certainly in our futures. All right. The last thing that I ask just about everybody is take us through your prep process leading up to a game. So let's take a road game because uh, what I typically do on the road is go to shoot around. I don't necessarily do it at home because I'm home and I have other obligations. But, um, you know, I'll get up in the morning, I'll work out, I'll have some breakfast, I'll take the team bus, we go to shoot around. And I always say shoot around in practice is both see and be seen. So you want the players and coaches to see you so there's an increased comfort level. And you also want to see what's going on. You want to, you know, hear how they're plotting to, you know, defend the opponent that night. You want to uh, talk to players on the side once they're shooting free throws. And it's a great way to gather information. I then go back to my room. And typically it's about a four or five hour process. And what I do is I take the game notes. And as I go through the game notes, I use that as a template for my preparation. And then I'll go down rabbit holes accordingly. So I might, you know, go through the game notes and I'll see a player's name and I'll see that, you know, he's shooting 45 percent and we played 60 games. And then I'll say, hey, shooting 45 percent, that's a that's a great percentage from three point land. Uh, and then I'll go and I'll see if it's a team record. And then I'll see that the record is held by, you know, I don't know, Reggie Miller. And then, um, you know, I, I that's kind of what and then I'll come back to the surface. I'll go back to the game notes and I'll and I'll do other players. I have go to websites that I go to uh, basketball reference and the team websites and, you know, websites that I can trust, that sort of thing. If I go to Wikipedia to look up uh, a new player or try to get a nugget on someone, uh, what I'll do is I'll look and see what the footnote is. So that if it's a New York Times article, I'll feel better about it than if it's, you know. Uh, a, a publication that I don't necessarily feel that good about it. Uh, I put stats and I put career highs and I put season highs on there because I don't want to be shuffling through papers and, and looking stuff up um, as we go. And then what I try to do is after I take all this information and I put it on a, a custom made Excel spreadsheet that I have, uh, I try to forget that I even have the sheet and just do the game, knowing that I have enough information going on up here that I can um, call the game, have a rapport with my analyst, 
and refer to my sheet only when I really have to. Yeah, that's um, that's interesting because I kind of feel the same way about making the spotting boards and Excel sheets for games. Is I don't actually use it that often when when the time comes. It's just more of the the learning it process. So, um, final question. I'm getting. We're recording this on July 18th. I am getting married on August 12th. So this will probably be the last one recorded before then. And it's a good one because you have had a long marriage and been through uh, the grueling schedule of the industry. What are some tips you would give to having a successful marriage while being a sportscaster? Honey, I love you. You're the greatest. Um, And I mean that from the bottom of my heart for my wife. And I know that you feel the same about your intended. I would say that good, honest communication is first and foremost what you want to keep at the top of your agenda. Um, And I think what you want to do, Logan, and this is what I do. Listen, if I had no life, I'd watch NBA games. I'd have league pass. um, You know, I'd go to sporting events, that sort of thing. When I'm home, I'm home. So when I have time to spend with my wife or my family, um, I pretty much ignore everything else that's going on. That's why, you know, man created DVRs. So if I absolutely positively have to see a certain event, you know, I'll go back and I'll, uh, I'll check it out the following morning. But I think what you need is someone who's very understanding. And then what you have to do is when you're not broadcasting, when you're not traveling, when you're not working nights and weekends, you have to, um, you have to be very much involved with them and allow them to dictate the agenda. So if somebody wanted to buy your book or look into your coaching services or find your podcast, how would they do so? MarkZumoff.com, M-A-R-C, Zumoff.com. And my podcasts are on the uh, CSN Philly website, which is CSNPhilly.com. By the way, great job. Take it from me. Somebody who's usually on the other side asking the questions, you did an awesome job. It was great being on with you. But I sure appreciate you. Uh, joining me here on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Once again, we are talking with Mark Zumoff. And Mark, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Logan, anytime. Thank you for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Please reach out to the guests that take the time to come on the show. They are a great resource for you, and it's nice to show the guests kind enough to join the show that they are appreciated. Also, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, the TuneIn app, or the SayTheDamnScore.com email update list. I'm Logan Anderson. Next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.